Hello, hello, my name is Dr. Rachel Gainsborough and I am obsessed with all things short-term rentals, revenue streams, and helping you navigate your career, real estate, and your busiest and most wonderful seasons of life. I'm an immigrant, a pharmacist, a wife and a mom who took one guest room rental and turned it into a multi-property, seven-figure real estate business, which has also landed us on TV. I'll teach you the real secrets and everything you need to build a short-term rental business that you love. I discuss the hard topics, mistakes I've made, and the mistakes others have made so you don't have to make them for yourself. Financing, automations, acquisitions, low occupancy, scaling, and building your team all while balancing your life are all subjects to be discussed here. Consider me that one best friend you can come to with your short-term rental business questions. So grab your coffee, get comfortable as you get ready to learn and grow with me. This is the Luxury Short-Term Rental Doctor podcast. I have my extra special guest, Chris Ledwidge who is a staple in our community. He's been keeping his head down uh, for a while there, working out what he can for our community to continue to invest in short-term rentals. So you know what? I wanted to bring him back and just connect with us and let us know what is out here uh, for us in terms of lending products, in terms of strategy. What are your goals? Where are you with? But one of my biggest New Year's resolution was to make sure that as many people as possible are able to source, invest, launch their short-term rental for 2023. And so that's what I'm doing is fulfilling upon that New Year's resolution. And that is by bringing my friend Chris Ledwidge on here to talk to us a bit about the strategies that he sees that are working now, how to position ourselves to crush 2023 by adding just one uh, rental. You know me, it's all about the luxury. <laughs> one rental to our portfolio. And so super excited to have Chris with us. And so Chris, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I always look forward to having this conversation with you because you truly have the heart of a teacher. You navigate all of these choppy waters uh, lending for us on our behalf. I know that's what you've been doing behind the scenes and you bring the goodness and the gems to our community. So massive thank you to you, Chris. I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce yourself and we'll take it from there. Thank you. And I appreciate that. And it's always a pleasure to be here and talk about these things. The subject matter is something I, I really enjoy talking about. And uh, for those of you I, I haven't met before, my name is Chris Ludwig. I'm one of the co-owners of The Lender. And my role within the lender is overseeing the consumer direct division, bringing these type of loan products directly to the consumer and uh, primarily focused on non-QM type loans and investors like yourselves. So today, what I'd like to talk about, I want to start off by talking about what are the most common loan products that I'm seeing being used for the short-term rental investor today. And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, purchase strategies. I want to talk a little bit about cash out refinance strategies, how to tap that equity that you might have in some of these other properties to use in order to buy that next short-term rental. And then I want to talk about overall strategies in this marketplace today that exists that you can leverage in order to you know get the best terms on your loan and get the most out of the transaction in general. So starting off with loan products, so primarily we're still seeing the majority of these STR loan products fall into the categories 
uh, uh, loan products like the Fannie Mae second home mortgage, DSCR loans. And we're, we've seen quite a bit of an increase in bank statement loans for real estate investors. Now, let's start off with the Fannie Mae, talk about any possible changes there, and then just do another overview on what are the pros and cons of that Fannie Mae program. Now, with the Fannie Mae program, uh, is minimum down payment requirements going to be 10%. All right. And with the Fannie Mae program, that's going to be a, what we call a full doc qualifier, meaning we're going to collect your income statements, whether those are W-2s, pay stubs, tax returns, and we're going to compare that to your debts, right? There's going to be a DTI component to those programs. What I like of the, the Fannie Mae second home mortgage is it's a good starting point for those investors that are looking to get into maybe that first short-term rental purchase, right? Because it allows them to enter with the least amount of capital as far as a down payment goes into the transaction. It's going to have slightly better uh, terms on the interest rate than these other products that we're going to talk about. It does not come with a prepayment penalty, which is something that I'm very, I promote that a lot right now. And we'll talk about that why in a little bit, but again, no prepayment penalty on that program. So Really a lot of pros with uh, Fannie Mae second home mortgage for those that are looking to buy maybe their first or even second short-term rental, assuming they have the income to qualify for that type of program. Downside to that Fannie Mae second home program right now, still, we cannot close in an LLC. Now, after you've owned the home for a certain amount of time, you can uh, reach out to the servicer on the loan and do a, a title transfer into an LLC. But initially, right out of the gate, you cannot close in an LLC. So for those individuals that are buying this with the intention of maybe a cost segregation, accelerated depreciation strategy that might, you know, prove to be a little bit more difficult with that Fannie Mae loan right out of the gate. And the terms on your Fannie Mae loan are typically going to be a 30-year fix or maybe an ARM product. There's not any options in there to do an interest-only option or maybe even a 40-year term on it that you can find on the DSCR or bank statement loan product. So Again, that's, that's one of the most common products is that Fannie Mae. Now, for those other loan products, probably the second most common is going to be that DSCR loan product, right? And the general overview of that, with a DSCR loan product, we're not using any of the individual's personal income or employment in order to underwrite that loan. What we're looking at instead is the subject property and its rent potential. In this case, we're looking at it from the perspective of a short-term rental income. We're going to use tools like AirDNA or Rabu to project the rental income on the subject property. And we're going to use that income to underwrite against the mortgage payment. And what we're looking for in that situation is that on a monthly basis, on average, is there enough rental income to cover the principal interest taxes and insurance? And that's it. The, the basic principles of the DSCR program. Now, with the DSCR program, that's going to work on single family residents, condos non-warrantable condos, townhomes, duplex, triplex, and quadplex, okay? So it's a little bit more diverse in, in that category of uh, properties that it can be used on. Um, what I like about the DSCR loan, one, you can close in an LLC. So if you're an investor that's scaling under LLCs, you can use the DSCR product and close in an LLC right out of the gate. There's going to be more flexible terms on a DSCR loan. That's where you can do things like an interest-only payment or a 40-year amortization. And that is, I see that often being important to the short-term rental owner-operator right out of the gate because when you're standing that property up, 
You might have money set aside for, you know, furnishing the property, really bringing that property up to a luxury status as an STR, right? So in the beginning, cash flow might be more important, right? Therefore, an interest-only option might make more sense. Now, one of the things I don't like about the DSCR loan is it typically comes with a five-year prepayment penalty. But anywhere you shop your DSCR loan, there's going to be the ability to maneuver around that prepayment penalty. Uh, just about anywhere these days that you look at DSCR loans, there's going to be an option for your prepayment penalty to be five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, or no prepayment penalty at all. And I'm going to give you a strategy in a little bit on how to get rid of that prepayment penalty. But keep in mind that's something that does come uh, the DSCR loan you're going to want to navigate. And, and I like the DSCR loan, again, because there's no DTI component, right? So if you maybe you own a primary residence or maybe you own one or two other STRs, there's a strong chance that your debt to income ratios are going to be maxed out. Therefore, you can't get a Fannie Mae loan. So how does one continue to buy and scale their portfolio of properties when their DTI is maxed out? That's where enters the DSCR loan. Again, no debt to income ratio. So you can continue to use that loan over and over again to scale properties. Now, the next loan that we're seeing an uptick in usage is going to be the bank statement loan, right? So the reasons I like the bank statement loan, it's going to have an interest rate that's usually about a quarter percent better than the DSCR rate. So DSCR rates on a purchase transaction today are going to be in the, anywhere from the high sevens to the mid eights. And what makes it a high seven or a mid eight is really going to be the property type, your FICO score, how well the property debt services and the loan to value on the property. Okay. Now the bank statement loan is going to be probably, you know, anywhere the mid sevens to low eights. So just slightly better than the DSCR, but the bank statement program is designed for self-employed individuals that have high cash flow coming into one of their bank accounts. So with a bank statement loan, we're not using your tax returns to qualify you. We're not using W-2s, pay subs, or anything like that. We're taking your bank account and we're looking at the total number of deposits that have gone into that bank account over the last 12 or 24 months. And then we're averaging that out on a monthly basis and using that as the income to underwrite the file, right? Now it does have a DTI component, on a bank statement loan. Uh, typically the highest you can go on that is 50%, but for maybe an STR operator or a self-employed individual that has high cash flow coming into the bank account, that's a good way to qualify for these loans where we don't have to introduce tax returns that might have a lot of write-offs on them. Typically that's what we see with self-employed individuals. You're going to have gross receipts on those tax returns of 500,000. But after you write off all the things down the line, that gets dwindled down to 100000 right? So if we're using the gross receipts of 500000 we have a lot more income to work with there. And we're seeing that bank statement loan perform really well in those situations as far as getting better terms. I also like the bank statement loan for two other reasons. You can, uh, being, you can close in an LLC. So for those investors that have that in their strategy, that's an option. And number two, the prepayment penalty on a bank statement loan only starts at three years. So it costs a lot less to buy down or buy out completely the prepayment penalty term on a bank statement loan as compared to a DSCR loan. So, you know, in 
you know, you're seeing second home investment properties probably land in the sixes, high sixes, maybe. Um, one thing to keep in mind on those Fannie Mae loans, high six rate, but you got mortgage insurance on top of it, right? So when you add those two together, it's probably pushing close to seven, seven and a uh, quarter. Okay. DSCR, again, you're looking at high sevens, mid eights, bank statement, mid sevens to low eights. Okay. Now let's talk about you know, a little bit on strategy in the marketplace today and how we're going to navigate the terms of these loans. No one likes a seven or 8% interest rate, right? And we like even less a prepayment penalty. We don't want to be in a loan at a seven or an 8% interest rate and not have an opportunity to refinance that loan into better terms when that time comes. And I do believe that time is coming. Uh, my opinion, I believe that time is going to be 12 to 18 months from now. So how do we deal with that? How do we get around this prepayment penalty? If you look at the market today, right, you've seen in all the news, that housing prices are dropping, that there's, there's turmoil out there. And there's a little bit of truth to that. And we're seeing that in indicators in the form of price drops, uh, time of listing on market, and more importantly, concessions, all right? So you see more sellers of homes willing to negotiate on price reductions and concessions. So concessions, being what I call seller credits, okay? So let's say you're doing a DSCR loan and your title fees, escrow fees, lender fees, impound account for property taxes and homeowners insurance comes out to 3%, okay? I'm gonna go and I'm gonna, I find a property, right? $500,000. I might wanna go in and offer 450, right? 10% off of that sales price. Instead of going in and putting all of my leverage in this market, and reducing that sales price by 10%. I'm going to go in and I'm going to reduce this, ask for a reduced sales price by 5%. And then I'm going to ask for another 5% in seller credit. That seller is crediting you money that you can use at the closing table to pay for your closing costs. Okay. Now, remember, we said we have about 3% between those title escrow lender fees and impounds. You have 2% credit left over from that seller. How are we going to use it? We're going to use that 2% seller credit to buy out the prepayment penalty or buy it down to a one-year term, right? Freeing you up the opportunity a year to 18 months from now to refinance that loan into better terms, okay? Now, that is a strategy that exists today. There's going to be a lot of people that are on the fence asking questions like, is now the right time to invest, right? The housing market's going this direction, rates are still high, all these things. And I understand that, but if you step out of that and you, and you start to look at it, what is the main driver of these decisions? Number one is it's going to be supply and demand. Okay. But look at the supply first. Right now, housing inventory supply is not nearly as abundant as one would think. Okay. If you look at the trend and the rate of inventory stacking up versus which we plan to sell it, it's not, it's not coming in and stacking up to a point that's really going to drive housing prices down significantly. Okay. So that's one thing to pay attention to. Now, if rates continue to improve, right, we're talking now about the demand side of things. If rates continue to improve, we're going to see more mortgage applications, more people going out there, preparing themselves to buy homes, entering new buyers into the market. And if you look at just January as a sample size, we saw a 28% increase in mortgage applications month over month. That's not uncommon going from December to January, but a 20% increase from December to January historically is still is, is bigger than normal. 
So you're seeing more people enter into the market as buyers while inventory is not stacking up like we thought it would. So you're going to see the leverage of the buyer begin to diminish going into the spring and summer selling season. And what that means is there's going to be less price reductions because more offers are coming in per property. We're already seeing multiple offers start to, as where a year or two years ago, you couldn't put in an offer on a property without 12 other people. And then all of a sudden it disappeared and there was maybe one offer every 30 or 45 days. We're now starting to see homes come to market and multiple offers within 30 days. Okay. So we're seeing a shift going back that other direction. And that's my point. If you're hesitant right now, you got to understand these things happen quickly and there's windows. And right now that window of leverage where you can go in and you can negotiate off the sales price and negotiate seller credit is closing. And I do expect there to be you know, more buyers than we anticipated entering the market this year. But there's not going to be more homes entering the market than what we planned on for two reasons, right? Number one, a big, uh, the homes that come to market for list or for sale are made up of what we call move up buyers, right? Those are people that bought a home maybe three to five years ago. Maybe something's changed in their life. Their family's expanded or whatever the case may be. And they want to move up into more square footage or into a different part of town. But you're not going to see as many of those because when they bought, they probably refinanced in the last 24 months, finding themselves in about a 3% interest rate. And they're going to look at the pricing on homes now and the interest rates that they get now versus the situation that they're living in. And you're going to see a lot of people staying put. So that's going to affect our supply. Again, keeping you know inventory levels somewhat sparse. Number two, home builders. Home builders are the only true net positive when adding homes to inventory, right? And what I mean by that is when you have a move up, they're putting one on the market, but they're also consuming one, okay? Now, home builders are putting a whole net positive into the market, but home builders, since about the beginning of 2022, slowed their position on building. Right? They started pulling less permits, entitlements, and they pushed projects from 2023 into 2024, maybe 25. Nice. They don't want to build a lot of homes in this type of market. They want to build, there's a great demand. So they're a little bit sketchy about you know releasing a lot of their land positions and building in those positions in this market. And that's going to you know, keep, again, inventory down. So I think that window of time, we're in it right now, where you have the leverage as a buyer to go in and negotiate and, and get things like seller credit that you can use to pay for your closing costs or uh, buy out your prepaid penalty. Another strategy with using those closing costs in here today is going to be the 2-1 buy-down strategy. Now, uh, the 2-1 buy-down strategy only works on Fannie Mae products, okay? And there is a variation of the 2-1 buy-down that's going to be available on the bank statement product. How does the 2-1 buy-down work? Essentially, what you're doing is you're taking seller credit from the seller of the home, and you're using that to subsidize your interest payments in the first two years, right? So let's say you get a 7% interest rate on that mortgage. In year one, it's going to have a 2% reduction on that interest rate, effectively making it 5% for the first year, saving you money. In year two of the loan, it's going to be a 1% reduction in interest rate, making it a 6%, effectively saving you money. And then years three through 30, you're still set at that 7% interest rate. I like the 2-1 buy down right now here today because you're going to enter that property for the first two years and you're going to save yourself a lot of money. All right? And you're not using subsidizing with your money. 
you're subsidizing with the credit that is being used from the seller. Okay. So these strategies exist in a time in a market like now. When, when things shift back to a seller's market, you're going to be able to negotiate seller credits quite as easily. The, the buy down, the two, one buy down won't make sense then anymore because right. you want to use their money to pay for it. And the, you know, using that seller credit to pay for your clothing costs, they're just not going to be willing to separate with 5% when there's multiple bids. So now is a, a good window of time to get into that. So. Could I jump in real quick? Yeah, uh, Chris? Oh my goodness. I don't know if I warned anyone to have their writing materials out because that was a lot of amazing information. So, so far we covered three uh, lending strategies. We covered the Fannie Mae second home loan. We covered the debt service coverage ratio loan. Additionally, we covered the um, bank statement loans. And I thank you so much, Chris, for breaking down the advantages and the disadvantages to each. So that was a light, that was a crazy amount of information. And a lot of this information, Chris, unfortunately, not a lot of people know that there are strategies out there to navigate today's current time. And so thank you so much for the wealth of information you've shared so far. And so what I love about what Chris just shared again, guys, what he's sharing are the exact strategy that members inside of our community have used over the last year to purchase over 30, 30 million in real estate. Okay. So what he's talking is not just pie in the sky. These are exact strategies. We have members of our community who have used the DSCR loans, who have used the second home loans, who have used the bank statement loans. So you guys are getting the goods. Okay. So um, next question, how will uh, interest rate rises impact demand for property. So anytime we see an increase in interest rates, you're going to see a decline in applications, a decline in buyers, right? Which is what we saw pretty much all of last year from about February right on through the end of the year. Okay. But I see interest rates going the other direction this year. Okay, so it can actually be the opposite of that. I don't see interest rates going up. We have a Fed meeting coming. I anticipate another 25 basis point increase there. And I expect a lot of what they call dovish language, meaning positive language surrounding, did we hit this soft landing? Are we seeing the, the right indicators on uh, inflationary numbers come down, jobs reports, things like that. And that's going to impact the actual interest rate that passes through to the consumer. Now, there's going to be another... There's something else going on behind the scenes that isn't really talked about in, in media in the form of what we call credit spreads, okay? The interest rate that you receive as a consumer is made up of the, that Fed funding rate per se, but also made up a lot of what we call the credit spreads. Credit spreads being the loan to value on the subject property, what your FICO score is on the property, what type of subject property is, how well does it debt service? And right now that's very tight. All right, the credit spread very, very conservative and tight, causing an increased price on those programs. Now, if we continue to trend in the direction that we have and the appetite for these loans uh, in Wall Street continues to grow, you're going to see those credit spreads open up and you're going to see the pricing on the credit spread improve, thus driving down the, the actual interest rate that's delivered to the consumer in these situations. So... To answer the question again in short order, as in interest rates increase, demand slows down. But I don't see that being the case as we move through the remainder of this year. I see interest rates going down. 
Awesome. Next question. When do you qualify for DSCR loan? The best way to, when do you qualify? You qualify, in my opinion, it sounds like that question is when should I qualify? When should I start that process? You know, when you've made a decision that you're truly interested in buying a short-term rental property, right? Whether it's your first or your fifth, you want to make sure you get your financing out of the way first, right? You, you can do some window shopping. You can go to, you know, Rabu or AirDNA or work with an agent and identify a property that you're interested in buying. But before you take any steps beyond that, take a moment and contact a lender and discuss, you know, what terms are available on that DSCR loan to the point where they've provided you a term sheet with your loan amounts, with your interest rate, with your payment, with your cash to close. And you've reviewed that with your lender, all right? So I think by doing it that way and submitting an application for pre-approval, then you're ready to actually make the next step and go out there and submit offers on properties. Too often, I can tell you one of the biggest mistakes I see is people doing that in the reverse order, where they fall in love with the property, they go, they, they talk to the agent and they, they, the agent tells them, oh, well, you know, I got to get offers in by tomorrow. And so they're scrambling to get a pre-approval and understand the terms of financing so they can meet that deadline. Do yourself a favor and vet that stuff out front. And I'll go even a little bit further there. Like, when do you know when you're shopping the right lender for your loan products, right? And we're talking about buying short-term rentals here. It's important, if, I, if I'm a consumer, if I'm you, I'm asking a few questions, right? M number one being when I'm talking to this person, that, you know, offering this program or this loan to me, I'm going to ask them, how many non-investor loans, how many short-term rental investor loans have you closed in the last 90 days? And if that answer comes in lesser than 12, then, well, yeah, I'll, I'll give it right, eight. If they've done eight in the last 90 days, they're, they're doing better than most as far as a comprehension level of these loan products. But I want to see at least eight transactions in the last 90 days. That tells me that this person really understands what we're dealing with here. And they're not going to have a bunch of oops along the way, or I didn't know and causing problems for you. So I'm asking them, how many transactions have you closed in the last 90 days? And I'm asking them about what other short-term rental products do you offer? If I contact a lender and the only thing they're offering in conversation to me is a DSCR loan, I, I may not be, they may not be the fit. And the reason I say that is I see a lot of people come in and say, I, I heard you do DSCR loans. I want to buy this short-term rental property. And I say, great, well, let's have a conversation and understand you and your goals first. And through that conversation, I realized the DSCR loan is not the best fit for them. Maybe it's a bank statement loan. Maybe it's a Fannie Mae product. And so you want to work with a lender that has all those products in their wheelhouse, where you can have a very detailed discovery call with them, that they're hearing what your goals are. They're asking the right questions, your, your financing and your and thresholds, so they can guide you into the right product for you. I love that because you're right. If they're only selling one product, of course, that's the product that's going to fit everyone, right? But if they have, you know, different opportunities to solve your problems, then they are able to uh, better give you, you know, a better direction and a better strategy going forward. So that was so good. Thank you so much for sharing that. Ask me, is it the max seller concession on investment properties 2%? Great question. So what you're talking about there is what we call IPC, interested party contributions. Now, each loan program is going to have a different threshold for what the maximum IPC is. 
Now with a DSCR loan or a bank statement loan or a Fannie Mae product at 90% LTV, you can go, you can actually go higher than 5%. You can go 6%, but typically 5% gets the job done. But great question. No, it's not 2%. That has to do with what we call the IPC rule, interested party contributions. Um, and with these loan programs on uh, the non-QM, you can go as much as six. Fannie Mae, uh, 90% LTV, you can go as much as six. Uh, interested parties are going to be the sellers. They're going to be the agents, either buyer or seller agent, and the lender. So the total contribution between all those people cannot exceed 6%. But typically in this market, I mean, some people go in and they negotiate a portion of their buyer's agent credit. You know, you're making two and a half on the deal. If I use you as my buyer's agent, I want to see, you know, half a percent of your commission come back to me in the form of credit, right? And then I want, you know, 5% from the seller, effectively giving you a five and a half percent total credit, or the lender decides to give you a credit. Those are all the interested parties that can contribute to the buyer in that situation. Wow, looks like some opportunities for leverage and negotiation as well, which is interesting. We hadn't seen uh, this atmosphere in a while, Chris. So I I'm really um, optimistic that right now is a great time if you really want to make a good deal, because once we turn the corner, it's going to be a different, a different environment altogether. And do you work with foreign nationals, aka Canadians? Yes. So the DSCR has a foreign national uh, version to it. Uh, minimum down payment requirement on a foreign national loan is going to be 25%. Outside of that, it's pretty much all the same terms and conditions as a standard DSCR loan with one exception. That one exception being on a foreign national loan, you cannot close an LLC. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, does this only apply to STR or can it apply to Midterm rental. Yeah, so it can, the DSCR loan is applicable to any investment property purchase. So whether you're doing short-term rental, mid-term rental, or long-term rental, uh, it applies to all. Awesome. How accurate are those estimates in Air DNA and Data Rabu? <laughs> so that's They're coming for me. <laughs> question. So we spent a lot of time uh, as an organization dissecting those data aggregators, we call them, right? They're aggregating all that different data and putting out, you know, estimates. And because we're using that stuff in our decision-making processes. And I would say AirDNA, for, they, they have some holes in there in the sense that, you know, they're taking into consideration cleaning fees. And probably the biggest hole is when they're scraping that data off the Airbnb and Verbo websites, if that property was listed this morning, at, you know, $500 a night, and now it's, it's blocked off for the next three days, the AirDNA system is making an assumption that that property was booked. Now it's not taking into consideration that that property might have been blocked off for personal use, might have been blocked off and given to a friend or family member, or might have been uh, that host might've executed a special offer after the booking request went in, right? That happens. You have it listed at, you know, $500 a night and they come in and say, hey, were you willing to work with me on this? And you drop it down to 400. Um, but AirDNA registers, it, it left the system at $500 a night. So it's assuming that it was booked for that. So there's a little, there's a couple of holes in there in that I would say overall, AirDNA does a pretty good job on, you know, pulling that data together and giving you an idea of what it can perform at. It uses pretty, it uses good comparables. Um, but when using the AirDNA tool, I'd probably 
toggle or look at it from the 75th percentile of that market, not the top 5% of that market and how they're performing. I would look at maybe the 75th percentile there. Uh, Data Rabu, I like that. I like that a little bit more. I feel their system is designed to pull out uh, the cleaning fee. Their system is designed to uh, register the difference between a blocked calendar and a reserved calendar. So I feel like that data comes in a little bit more uh, precise. And again, it's going to be a little bit more accurate in terms of ADR, RevPen, things that are uh, drivers of decisions when buying a short-term rental. I love it. So we spent a lot of time inside of the community going over uh, Air DNA, Data Rabu, and I think it's so important to understand your numbers because uh, this is another added advantage, right? This is all the tools that uh, will help with underwriting for DSCR loans. So it's really important to understand, you know, how to read those numbers. So thank you, thank you for that friendly reminder. And great question. Um, so uh, for the individual that asked that question, it just says Facebook user. I really wish I knew who asked it because it's such a great question. But here's the deal. Um, with AirDNA and DataRap, they, they're not going to be perfect. You know, there's going to be nuances to each, but they're still the best um, resources that we have right now in terms of aggregating the actual data. And so part of it is using strategies. And we have about four strategies that we use to kind of scrape away and remove the, the uh, properties that are completely out of alignment with you know, reality. So mm -hmm. like uh, Chris said, you know, say a property booked for one weekend for $3,000 because it was um, Super Bowl weekend. Sometimes AirDNA will extrapolate that $3,000 all the way through. And we know that that particular property, we're going to remove it from our comps, right? Yeah. And so the goal is to get three or four properties that are comparable to what it is that you're looking, you know, to purchase. And you, there, you know, by really evaluating those three, three or four, you can get a good idea of what, you know, type of nightly rate you can demand. But of course, we're not going to just take the general number. When uh, a lot of the members in the Facebook group, they go into AirDNA and they're like, this market, they make $345 a night. Mm -hmm. That just burns my biscuit because it could be a trailer home that is like run down in a mansion mm -hmm. that is beachfront and they put it all in one, you know, pot and they're like $346 per night is the actual rate for this market. Mm -hmm. yes. Not okay, right? We got to go in and go all the way in and do a deeper dive. And really look at, you know, four bedrooms, five bedrooms, just really get granular with it from, you know, wide and <laughs> deep to figure out what are the three or four properties that actually are uh, similar and are comps to the property, the subject property that you're looking to purchase. So yeah. not, we're not, you know, just half whatever it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Okay, so oh my, um, something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, Chris, and I don't know uh, whether or not you covered it for the three categories. So you mentioned a down payment, estimated down payment. You mentioned interest rate, what to expect. We, we understand that you mentioned prepayment penalty, which is so important. And I thank you for going over that and just putting it out there because I don't think everyone's thinking of these things. So, um, and then we didn't talk about credits. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's something that is coming up. What are the best options if you're using business credit instead of personal credit, like Paydex scores instead of FICO question mark? 
So with any of these loan programs, they're not going to be using business credit in order to make a credit decision. They're going to be looking at the individual's credit. Even though you're closing LLC, you as the, maybe the manager of the LLC or the owner of that LLC, you're still applying for the loan. So it is your credit that is being evaluated in the decision of that loan approval process. Awesome. Okay. So thank you so much for that clarification. Business credit is good for, say, you're looking to get a lease of business types of equipment or um, lease a property and you want to lease it under your um, your business name, they're going to, as long as it's a like a REIT or a corporation, they'll most likely look at your business credit. But if you're looking to work with like a personal landlord, even they don't look at business credit. I'm going to be honest with you. They don't, they wouldn't even know how to run a Paydex or look at Dun and Bradstreet or any of that. So um, the personal credit is going to be the thing. If you're buying furniture and things like that, business credit may come in handy. But it primarily uh, for mortgages, it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be your personal credit for the most part. Am I out of line with that? No, you're, okay. you're precisely on point with the, when it comes to these mortgage loans. Again, you're going to be looking at your personal credit. We can clone the LLC, but it is you as the owner of the LLC and your credit that is going to make that decision. When it comes to the business credit, lines of credit or loans, something maybe like Nectar, uh, they seem to be out there, you know, pushing towards the short-term rental operator in the form of offering them business loans or lines of credit that can be used for furniture, renovations, uh, even Right. arguably down payment. Um, and that would be purely uh, tied to the business that's not, not personally tied to you. Awesome. I think it's such a great question. I don't think I've ever gotten that question before. So that was a good question to help us to kind of re understand where the business credit piece uh, falls into place. And, and thank you for mentioning the renovations. That's something as well to take into consideration. As does a personal credit affect these types of loans? Personal credit plays, certainly plays a role in the credit decision on these loans. So we're looking at the FICO score. We're looking at any history of derogatories, whether that's been collections, bankruptcies, short sales, foreclosures. So it, it definitely plays a role in the uh, credit decision. Now, another thing that comes up quite often uh, in conversations surrounding these DSCR loans is, will this report on my credit? And the answer is yes, right? Now there's 90% of the time it's gonna report on your credit. So I always tell everyone, assume it's gonna report on your credit. The only time it wouldn't report on your credit is if that loan ends up being sold to a servicer that does not report, but that's not very common. It's, it's, and if anything, it's uncommon. So you wanna assume that this is gonna report on your credit. Now, the very next thing that gives people anxiety around that was this, well, what if I want to qualify for a, another loan on my primary residence or this or the other? Now, understand that if you take this loan, right, this DSCR loan, it is going to report on your credit. But if you make 12 consecutive payments on that from a business account, right, you can omit that debt from any type of future application where you're trying to borrow money. And let me just kind of put it in context again. If I, again, I got that loan and I set up a business bank account and the business bank account makes that mortgage payment. After 12 consecutive months, it no longer counts against me when I go and apply for a primary residence loan. It's the process of omission of debt. 
right? Which is something that you can do in any type of conventional loan, FHA, VA, or any type of financing that you're looking to do down the road. And I think it's really important to talk about that. That's one of the things that I see come up all the time. You see people in Facebook groups like, no, my DSCR loans don't report on credit. And that person really doesn't have any understanding about how those loans are sold and serviced on the back end, and that those loans can get you know, typically sold as much as two times. So it might've started with a servicer that didn't report, and then that servicer sells that loan, and it ends up with a servicer that does. And so I, I think it's really important that people anticipate that. That was like a whole nugget, not even a gem. It was like a nugget. <laughs> that was so good. Oh my goodness. Thank you for that clarification. Says, can you say again, what percentage you put down with a DSCR loan? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you for asking. I, I don't believe I mentioned it. So mm -hmm. typical down payments on a DSCR loan for short-term rental right now are coming in at 25%. You can cut, you can ask to do only 20% if in fact you have what we call compensating factors. Those compensating factors would be you know, at least three of the five following. Number one, do you have reserves, right? We're looking for anywhere between six and 12 months reserves on the subject property. Number two, we're going to look at is investor experience. Uh, is this your first time buying a short-term rental or have you been doing this for, you know, two plus years? And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be short-term rentals. You could have been operating long-term rentals, but we really think investor experience plays a big role as a compensating factor. Number three, what's the debt service ratio on the property, right? So uh, debt, DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio. And that's just the ratio between the mortgage payment, principal interest taxes, insurance, and the monthly revenue on the property. Now, if it's $2,000 a month in mortgage and the property makes $2,000 a month in rent, a DSCR ratio of one. If that property were to make uh, be $2,000 a month in payment, but uh, $3,000 a month in revenue, that would be a DSCR ratio of 1.5. So that third compensating factor is we wanna see a DSCR ratio that's greater than 1.15, that we consider that to be a compensating factor. Number four is gonna be your credit. We're gonna take a good strong look at the credit. If you're asking for an exception to put lesser money down, only 20%, we're gonna also look at the credit and see you know, what type of revolving credit history you have, installment credit history, overall FICO score. And then number five is we're going to take another hard look at the subject property itself. Is there anything unique about this subject property that uh, presents risk? Is it, a, is it a dome home? Is it in a rural area? Is it in, is there something about the property that indicates higher risk? And that might be, you know, a reason we do or do not make the exception. So typically, again, 25% down. But you can, if you can meet at least three of those co five compensating factors, you can ask for an exception to do only 20% down. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. But I'm glad you actually covered that. So are you saying that the individuals contributing are acting as partners to you for the loan? Is so it sounds or like per purchasing. Oh, it sounds like a question where there's multiple people like maybe it's an LLC, right? And there's four members of the LLC and do they all need to go on the loan application or how would that work possibly? So if we're doing it, if I'm understanding the question correctly, if you're closing in an LLC, we'll allow for up to four members of that LLC. 
but only one member needs to complete the loan application. And so it's not all members that would be pulling their credit, looking at their credit. It would just be one member that has the authority within the LLC to apply for the loan. Awesome. Okay. I hope that provides us that infinite. Does your loan allow for both STR and MTR within the first year? And I think we answered that, but Chris, uh, there's some clarification that you can provide there. I appreciate it. Yeah, it does. So you, again, you can use it for short-term rental, you can use it for midterm, or you can use it for long-term rental. So any of those uh, constructs would work within the DSCR loan. Awesome. Next question. What can I do to qualify for loans as a first-time buyer? Is it possible to buy more than one house all at once? Do I pay less down payment if I stay in the house for six months? Or move out later. Okay, so this is a loaded question. I'm going to preface it with we're talking investment types of loans right now. So first time home buyer is a whole different situation. So we're talking about short term rentals for those who are looking to invest. But Chris, I'll let you add any caveats on top of that. Yeah. So anytime you're doing like a DSCR or bank statement loan, it is not eligible for first time home owners. Okay, or first time home buyers. You must own a primary residence in order to be eligible for uh, a DSCR or bank statement investment purchase. Now, it, what you're talking about there, it sounds like the question is more like if I were to buy a property with maybe a conventional loan, 5% down, and I lived in it for a year, could I turn around and turn that into investment property? Yes, you can. But the stipulation is you must live there and occupied for at least a year. So if you are a first-time home buyer and you're looking to get into whether a short, an investment property strategy, you can look at conventional loans. You can even look at an FHA loan on a multi-unit property. And, and what we call, you know, you heard the term house hacking, where someone might buy a duplex, triplex, or even a quadplex, occupy one of the properties as their main resident or units as their main residence, and then rent out the other ones. And that would offer, you know, that first time home buyer to get into a property with as little as three and a half percent down and then opening up those other properties. So that's that little tiny bucket where that would work for the first time home buyer. Everything else that we talked about here today, whether it's the Fannie Mae second home bank statement or DSCR is going to require that the individual owns their own other primary residence. Awesome. My question is regarding second home loan, my wife's just used one to purchase our first STR under her name. I want to get pre-qualified for property number two. Do you think there would be issues if I use the same bank as my wife, as we have the same address, but get pre-approved in my name only? The property would be in the same city. Thank you. No, because your wife's allowed to own her own property, right? Whether it's a that's bougie. Yeah, like we're California. Like, so when they, when you go in and do your application, if you're the only person on the loan application, we're not looking at spousal debt. We're not. And, and when you're filling out your application on page three of that loan application, there's a section for schedule of real estate owned. Obviously, you're not going to put your wife's property in there because they, we're asking about what you own, not what she owns. So it, the chances that you know that lender looks at that and correlates that to your wife's application that funded in the past is slim to none. 
And you're actually qualifying off of your own income and you're owning that property. That second home is yourself. So you, it's kind of, there's a veil there, if you will, between the two transactions. But if anything were to pop up in the underwriting process that showed that your wife owned a vacation rental property there, that you're buying another one there, it might bring up questions. Keep in mind these, when you're doing a second home mortgage, there's going to be a lot of underwriter discretion in some of these decisions. And if the underwriter gets a sense that you're using that product really as an investment strategy and not so much as a second home purchase, they might, you know, decline the loan. Now, keep in mind, a Fannie Mae loan is completely okay to be used for buying a property. As long as you occupy it 14 days a year, it meets the eligibility. Also, you must keep the property in your control. That's a big distinguishment on those type of loans. You cannot take that property and put it in a rent pool or under a property management company because then you lose the ability to control occupancy on that property. You must remain in control the schedule and the operation of that property. My current DSCR doesn't allow to close into an LLC until after a year. Is this one the same for your company? Do you all care about debt to income ratios for high income earners with tons of student loans, which is our whole community, that are uh, qualifying for forgiveness in the next two years? Are you all licensed in? And oh my goodness, I am so ashamed of myself. MS, that's Mississippi, right? Yeah, Mississippi, (laughs) history class. So those are, we have several questions there. Let me know if I need to break it all down or if you want to just dive in. I I got this, that one. So no, our DSCR loan, you can close an LLC. There's no must remain. You you don't need to wait a year. You can close in an LLC. There is no debt to income ratios in a DSCR loan. We don't look at your, we don't look at your debts. We don't look at your income. We purely look at the rent potential on the subject property and compare it to the payment. And then in Mississippi, yes, we license and originate loans in Mississippi for DSCR. Phenomenal. I hope that provided you value. Okay. On Data Rabu, how can you tell if a property is considered the 25th percentile versus the 70th percentile? So when you're in there using their data tool, um, I like theirs because again, you can drill down, right? You can see what type of properties in that area are performing best. Is it a two bedroom? Is it a three bedroom? Is it a four bedroom? What amenities are attached to the properties that are performing best? So I think within that mechanism, you can like you export the data on a spreadsheet and you can toggle back and forth on like that percentile. So that's how you do it within Rabu. If you're in AirDNA, when you're running like under the, say the market analysis uh, per the zip code or the city or wherever, uh, there's a graph there where you can pick 100th percentile, 80th, 75th, and so on and so forth. Now it's going to be under the market analysis. Now, one thing we're, we're coming up on time here, and I know I want to uh, share this with you guys. One thing we didn't talk about, we talked about these loans being used for purchase, right? Now, a lot of people are sitting on equity today, right? And a lot of investor strategies involve leveraging that equity and using it to buy the next one. So we haven't really talked about how do we tap into that equity today when interest rates are, you know, again, in the sevens and eights and such, or may, on a cash out refund, maybe as much as nine. So especially when you have a rate at home at maybe three or 4%, right? It does not make sense to tap in that equity 
and pull out what you have and readjust all the mortgage to today's rate. So how do we get around that? One of the, as a result of that, the mortgage market has seen a demand and a need and brought out second mortgages, right? And nothing new, but not a HELOC, but a HE loan, right? And that's going to be a fixed rate second mortgage behind the first. Now that can be used on second homes and it can be used on investment properties. With that loan program, we're going to qualify you with you know, the traditional sense on your income statements, or we can qualify you off of your bank statements if you're self-employed. Now, uh, those rates are going to be somewhere in the 11 range, right? But what you're looking at there and when, that strat when does that strategy make sense? That strategy makes sense if you're determined to move forward on a purchase and you need your equity in order to do that, right? So you might cash out, you might take a second mortgage on that property uh, in the tune of $250,000 at an 11% rate and not touch that 3% rate that you have on the $500,000, right? So you're blending those two, right? The second mortgage rate at, at $250,000 at 11%. And you're blending that with the $500,000 at 3%. And you're probably coming up with maybe a 6% blended rate, maybe a 7% blended rate, which is going to be you know, 2 to 3% better than what you're going to get by doing a cash out refinance, right? So again, if you're looking to leverage equity today to buy the next property and cash out refinances doesn't make sense, you're going to want to look at a HELO, right? HELOCs, very difficult. Very difficult there. You know, you can get a HELOC, PenFed or Spring EQ, or maybe some of these other outlets last year, but HELOC terms have shrunk. Very, very difficult to get HELOCs on second home and investment properties, nearly impossible. But you can get HELOCs, right? It's not an open-ended line of credit. It's just a second mortgage, either a 15, 20, or 30-year fixed rate term. Wow. That was really good. I had never heard of a he loan before. So thank you for dropping that gem. And you're right. You know, quite a few of the members of our community are sitting on uh, equity, you know, that they're not tapping into or they're not able to access. And so what's going on with the HELOC? Why can't they tech? Why is everyone getting denied for their HELOCs? That's what I want to know. Because HELOCs, if you just looked at the statistics on HELOCs and second mortgages, though, those have some of the highest default rates. And anytime there's a default on a property, the second position loan, lien, right? Like a HELOC gets paid last. Whoever has that first position lien gets paid first. So in, in a market like this, where there is, there, there's a lot of uncertainty about default, you, you see things like HELOCs just kind of disappear, right? The, the risk threshold is, is too high on, on those type of loans, right? Okay. But you mentioned that like PenFed does them still or no? Yeah, PenFed was the, the outlets that were doing HELOCs on investment properties last year, PenFed, which is Pentagon Federal Credit Union. And then Spring EQ is another one that was doing it. Um, and then Quorum Financial, I think the Q-U-R-U-M, Quorum uh, Financial, they, those are, you know, three outlets that were doing very, very good jobs on HELOC type products, but, you know, have since tightened up their guidelines on those. And then in general, credit unions are always going to be a great option for HELOCs. So it doesn't mean don't try for HELOC. It just means, I'm just saying they're hard to come by right now. But if you're going to go out there and look for them, 
look at credit unions uh, that are, you know, close to where you're living that you can, you know, join as a member and drop in some money and some assets and maybe get, you know, something true. Awesome. And as far as a he loan, is that something that you all do with the lender? Yes. It's something that we, it's become quite a bit more common offering in the, in today's market, because people are not going to want to break 3% rate to tap into equity. No, you're absolutely right. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, this is going to help a lot of people. I was just uh, messaging even some of the higher income earners in our group and they were like, yeah, the HELOC didn't go through. And I'm looking at them like, I don't know what to tell you. So thank you so much. Wealth of knowledge, guys. I am bringing all of the goodies. So this next one says it does that. Okay. So it sounds like you're saying corporation would use business credit, but an LLC has to be personal. Is that what you're saying, Rachel? Okay. That's a great question. I, I wasn't touching corporation at all, at all. So I, let me just one caveat, be mindful uh, purchasing a property inside of a corporation, you're not going to get um, your a lot of the tax benefits if you go the corporation route. Don't quote me on it, but that's what I've heard from a lot of our tax experts. So double check with that before you were you ever purchase a house inside of a corporation. Okay, all right. So I'm I'm just gonna stop there. Do you know, Chris, about corporations business credit versus LLC business credit? As you know, so business credit, if you're going to go in and get like a business line credit or you're going to get a business loan, they're going to look at that entity and they're going to do a look back of anywhere from 12 to 24 months and look at the, the revenue that business produces, um, the liquidity of that business, the solvency of that business. And that's what's going to drive a decision to extend a business line of credit or a business loan, right? Now with the DSCR, like, that's again, different. You're, you are signing a personal guarantee on those loans and you're just closing, taking title in, in the LLC, right? So that would, that it's different, right? As where a business is just, everything's over here, DSCR loans, personal guarantee, uh, personal credit. Awesome. All right. Next question. Did I hear correctly that you use DSCR loans for non-warrantable condos? Correct. Minimum down payment on a non-warrantable condo is going to be 25%. Uh, what makes up a non-warrantable condo? The most common occurrence for a non-warrantable condo is when, let's say we have a condo uh, community of 20 units, right? And 11 of those units are investment properties or non-owner occupied, making it greater than 50% investment properties. That would make that whole community of condos non-warrantable. So that, that's the most common occurrence for a non-warrantable designation. There's others like um, if the budget for the HOA is not up to par, that would make it non-warrantable. If there's a lot of commercial space with the condo project, uh, meaning like, like a movie room or a, a weight room and things like that, or a workout studio, if the actual square footage of that is greater than 25% of the whole community, then that, that would be non-warrantable as well. Awesome. And final question, any loans for incorporated businesses? Uh, incorporated? Yeah. So the DSCR loans, you can use it in a, ver a variety of different business structures, whether that's LLC, trust, in incorporated type businesses. 
Uh, it gets a little tricky when we get into trust. I'll say that it has to be like an Illinois land trust. And there's, there's quite a bit of layers there that we must uh, understand before going that high in strategy. But the, uh, the various types of entities that can carry title, including LLC, trust, corporations. Uh, in fact, I believe it on our website, we have those listed. Uh, if you were to go to uh, the lender.com, click on, there's going to be two tabs, one that says broker, one that says buyer or borrower, click on the borrower one. You'll go to a home screen and you'll select the DSCR loan type. And it has all the different entities that you can close that loan in. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I definitely think tonight's session is going to help a lot of people as we navigate these choppy waters with the um, ever-evolving real estate market, ever-evolving uh, interest rate, and all that is going on in the current economy. So guys, I hope you found this to be helpful. I hope you're inspired to uh, do something, right? To still work on achieving your goals for investing in 2023. Uh, with that being said, Chris, could you let the people know how to best get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I believe I, I gave you some links, but um, I'll go ahead and send you some after the fact, but there's going to be several links that uh, we could pass out after. One of them being a link to our website with more information on these loan products. Uh, the second link is a link that you can use to book an appointment to speak with one of our mortgage analysts and collect estimates, pre-approvals, things of that nature. And I think the third link uh, is going to be to our YouTube page where I've done different videos breaking down some of these loan products and uh, posting new content on changes, market updates um, as frequently as I can get to them. So again, you can go to our website. There's buttons in the top right-hand corner to book a call there, or you can use the direct booking uh, link that I'll provide Rachel, or you can email us at consult at thelender.com. And again, that's consult at thelender.com. At the general inbox where you can email me, I monitor that inbox. So if I see something come in there, um, I might tie in one of my mortgage analysts and then we'll work with you on getting estimates and kind of helping guide you through some of these questions. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate everyone who joined. Again, we are here to help you and support you as you look to achieve your short-term rental goal for 2023, uh, definitely tap in. I will um, be adding the link or Christian will help me <laughs> adding all the links uh, in the chat. So if there are any additional questions that you may have, feel free uh, to tap in with Chris. Just remember guys, everything is figure out. Sometimes it takes uh, some time to wait. Sometimes it takes uh, repositioning a few things, but everything is figure outable. And so that is what we uh, promote in this community, working together to figure out how to navigate uh, and, you know, put our best foot forward and take our next best steps. So thank you, Chris. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you uh, being here in the community and just providing so much value. As I uh, love you guys to the moon and back, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Okay. Bye-bye for now.